Okay, good evening, and this is actually the first of the lessons. The last lesson that we did was more just my own personal notes in regards to the value of biblical doctrine. So we are going to go through this. We're actually not going to get very far tonight. Several of you have asked me, and my intention is not to race through, but neither are we actually going to take the time to dissect every single line. Now, if you've got questions as you're reading through the doctrinal book, uh, we want you to be able to feel like you can come and ask me, especially as we get into some of the deeper theological points later on down the road. However, the point of this class really is to give you an overview. It's almost a summary of biblical doctrine. The book that you have in front of you, of course, it's a thousand and something pages. That is a ton of material. And nobody's ever going to be able to remember all of that information. It has taken a long time. Every systematic theology or biblical theology book that you have, uh, you'll, you'll find, if you were to actually ask the authors or whoever compiled that or put that material together, it's probably taken years of research to be able to put all of that together, you're never going to be able to comprehend all of it or even the finer points or the nuances within each one of those doctrines. I mean, look at eschatology, for example. I mean, we started two years ago in January of 2022, uh, only managed to get through chapter 11, and I have only covered partial uh, uh, when it comes partially when it comes to dealing with the book of Revelation, which of course is from an eschatological viewpoint, which simply means eschatology means the end times or eschatos, the last times, the study of ology. And uh, each one of these, the word ending on the end, ology, simply means the study of. So theology, of course, comes from the Greek theos, which means God. Theology. Now, there's actually two forms of theology that we're going to look at. One is theology in a broad term actually considers all of, so everything that you find in Scripture is theology. Okay? Theology, when it comes to the, when you actually break the word down, though, it actually deals with the doctrine of God. And so we will actually be looking at that. That is one of the, one of the doctrines. We'll be looking at the doctrine of God, the, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And of course, there are several other ologies. You have homartiology, which is the doctrine of sin. Anthropology, the doctrine of man. Um, of course, eschatology, we already talked about that. Ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, comes from the Greek word ekklesia, uh, which simply means a called out assembly. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this evening, that's exactly what you are. You are part of a called out assembly. You have been called by the sovereign and supreme God of the universe from eternity past. He has set his love upon you so that you would then become a part of his bride. And this is why we celebrate together. This is why we celebrate the Lord's table. It's why we celebrate baptism, for example. Um, each one of these aspects of theology, these ordinances, not sacraments, but ordinances are actually given to the local church. They're not given to individuals. So, for example, with the Lord's table and with, uh, and we're, we're jumping way ahead here, but just as an idea to tell you how, or to show you how important theology is, if, 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 uh, um, uh, now that we're in the New Testament age, if let's say that uh, um, um, 
Corey and I are driving down the road, and, and, and he's just blowing down the road doing 85 miles an hour in his big red monster. And uh, so I went along with him for the ride. And uh, we happen upon one of the few lakes that's deep enough to actually cover your head in Wyoming. And so he says, hey, look, there's some water. Can you go ahead and baptize me real quick? <laughs> Biblically, would I have the authorization to be able to do that? And the answer is no. Because the church was given the ordinance, not an individual. And the purpose for the ordinance, there's a difference between maybe where you've come from or a church background that you have had. Some churches refer them to sacraments. Does anybody know what the word sacrament means? It actually comes from a Latin term, sacramentum. Sacramentum means a means of obtaining grace. So if, for example, if you're in a Roman Catholic church, as an example, or in a Lutheran church, and you partake of communion, you're actually receiving, in their theology, you're actually receiving grace by partaking that. The Catholic church goes so far as to say that if you do not receive communion, you are actually not receiving Christ, and therefore, you are not a believer. So we do not believe in the sacraments, we believe in the ordinances. The ordinances uh, are, is, is a term that simply refers to a memorial um, of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by partaking in baptism, for example, we partake as a one-time baptism for the purpose of doing what? Showing forth a testimony of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world that we are now identifying with Christ. This is a picture that is done mainly to the outside world. Communion, on the other hand, is an ordinance that takes place within the confines of the local church. And this, this ordinance is taken for one purpose, and that is to show forth the testimony of your life to the other brothers and sisters that are around you that you are striving to walk in a way of holiness before God. So that would give you an idea of the two differences between, for example, sacraments and ordinances. Okay? So, I want you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we are going to read again verse 16 and verse 17. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So let's begin this class by looking at the preface. Now, for the most part, not for some time yet, will we actually be using the book in class itself. I'm trying to be as thorough as possible in the material that we are using and providing you a detailed study guide. So as long as you're reading the material, you really shouldn't have to bring the book with you. I know it's kind of cumbersome. It's a kind of, excuse me, kind of thing that you could use while you're sitting down, for example, at a kitchen table. Uh, if, excuse me, if you wish to bring it, you can. Um, but for the most part, we are not going to be doing anything but referencing the book while we're actually in the class itself. Okay. On page 25, MacArthur and Mayhew start off by giving six qualities that shape the overall design and formation of biblical doctrine. 
Now, I want to make it clear here that he is not referring to biblical doctrine as it applies to the scriptures. The biblical doctrine he is actually referring to there is that big massive heavy tome that you've got sitting on or sitting there in front of you. However, having said that, the six points that he gives in regards to these the, the formation of this particular book, I find an application that actually that we can actually find as it applies to scripture as well, and I'd like to share those with you. Number one, the first one is what? What is the answer you have for number one? Biblical. So the progress of spiritual revelation. This has nothing to do with man or man's perception of how he thinks God reveals himself to man. For example, here are a few various religions. Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism uses not just the Bible, they do not hold to sola, S-O-L-A, scriptura, meaning only the scriptures. They add to the scriptures. You can have confessions, creeds, the doctrine of the church or the ecclesiastical hierarchy. For example, when the Pope speaks um, and he is speaking from the throne of St. Peter, which is actually not the throne of St. Peter, but that's what they call it, does anybody know what the term is, the, the Latin term that is used for when he is speaking and what that means? Cathedra. Ex cathedra, meaning he speaks on behalf of God and he speaks infallibly. So the Pope actually believes when he is speaking on the throne, as long as he is on the throne of St. Peter or in the Basilica, there in, in the Vatican City, which is an enclave within the city of Rome itself, he believes that his speech, whatever he says from that platform, is the same as if God was speaking to you through his word. Okay? So here's another one for you. And, and again, there are two aspects, and I wish I had my board here for this, but there are two aspects. We're going to kind of jump ahead for just a moment. There are two and only two viewpoints that you can possibly have when it comes to biblical theology. Number one is an anthropomorphic or an anthropocentric, that simply means man-centered theology. Okay, This viewpoint actually, and I want to read this to you, I pulled up this definition here. It comes from the Greek word anthropos, which means man, and centron, which is, of course, center. And it is, quote, the belief that human beings are the central or most important entity in the universe. Some refer to the concept as human supremacy or human exceptionalism. In other words... Me, myself, and I is more important than anything else in the universe. That is a human-centered or a man-centered viewpoint. And the way that you view scripture is either going to be one of these two points because it's going to color everything that you do. It's going to color the way that you see your marriage. It's going to color the way that you see the relationship with you and your children or you and your colleagues or the way that you even view work. For example, was work... Is work a result of the fall, or was it before the fall that work was given to man? Before the fall. Before the fall. 
But yet a lot of people, if your theology is wrong, you're going to moan and gripe and complain every day. You have to get up on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday to be able to go to work. You see, a biblical theology says that God established work for one reason, and that is to bring honor and glory to himself. It's also so that we will not be idle or lazy. So that gives you one viewpoint. The second viewpoint is a theocentric. Of course, we have seen the Greek word theos or God. A God-centered belief is that God is the central aspect to any and all existence. In this view, meaning and value of actions done to people or the environment, all of it is attributed to God. So when we look, for example, and we make a determination that we are going to view the scriptures either from what man has to say or from what God has to say, there's going to be a lot of your theology maybe that might go out the window with this class. Or maybe it's going to have some, you're going to have some tweaking or some refining of that theology so that you have a clear understanding of what God expects of you. You see, there, there, are, two, there are two main aspects, and if you get these two wrong, you're going to have all of your theology is going to be wrong. Number one, the sovereignty of God. And number two, the depravity of man. Because if you believe in some way as John and Charles Wesley did, for example, and you believe in a divine spark whereby you simply have to use whatever means is necessary to be able to fan into flame this little spark of divinity that is within you, and you can do this apart from God, guess what happens when your life falls apart? How are you going to respond? When you realize that, that God is not there to begin with or in your estimation, because he doesn't come down to take control of your life in the way that you and I want him to control our lives. You see, too often people pray, Lord, your will be done, not mine, or what that's what they should be praying. And instead of praying on earth as it is in heaven, our actions and our attitudes are, Lord, your will be done in heaven as we already have deemed it necessary on earth. You see, there's a big difference between the two. So let's look at a second religion, the LDS. The LDS, one of their earliest presidents, stated this. As man is, so God was. As man is, so God or so we may become. Or as God is, so, we may, so man may become. In other words, what they teach is that there are multiple gods, unknown number of gods, and everybody who is born, every man who is born, can one day arrive at godhood, get his own planet, establish his own rules, have a multiplicity of wives who are forever perpetually pregnant, having spirit babies, whereby you may populate your, your own universe as long as you're good enough. Now, where do they get that from? Because it's not from Scripture. When we talk about, again, it's a man-centered religion. Let's go back to Catholicism for a moment. Do I believe that there are people who are in the Catholic faith who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. I believe that it is possible for somebody to be a baby Christian and never grow or having not grown because they have not been taught the scripture, which is why discipleship is so important, 
which is why maturity in Christ is so important because as you study the scriptures, you would find out you could not remain within that system of religion. But why would you want to stay in a system of religion whereby there is no hope? In 2005, Pope John Paul II died. And a at that point, relatively unknown cardinal actually stood up and gave the funeral mass. And in that funeral mass, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, who then became Pope Benedictus XVI, actually stated, let us pray for our dearly departed brother and father so that he may be released quickly from the fires of purgatory. Not even the guy at the top has any assurance whatsoever of being able to go to heaven. And again, this is the problem with a man-centered religion. Purgatory actually was not designed by anything other than the Catholic Church around A.D. 1100. And it was done for the purpose of making money for the Catholic Church. That was it. What about the Seventh-day Adventist? You see, if you hold to the doctrine of Seventh-day Adventists, you believe that those who worship on a Sunday, for example, wear the mark of the beast by worshiping on a Sunday because they believe in worshiping on a Saturday. They also believe in the writings of a person called Mary Baker, Eddie White, whatever the other names are because she was, mul she was married and divorced multiple times. And they hold her writings to be of such value that that becomes like their Bible to them. Ellen G. White. What about Islam? Somebody was talking about with me about Islam. Mike was. And the Hadiths. The Hadiths are sayings or, or uh, like proverbs, if you will. It would be similar to our proverbs. Uh, but the Hadiths that are written by various uh, Muslim uh, 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 clerics. Uh, trying to think of the other name that they call them. But many of them... Are, are written either predominantly by the Sunni or by the Shiite, which is the two main groups within Islam. And they actually believe, and you can read the Quran for yourself, it's, it's a very convoluted book to read in the first place, but if you were to read the Quran, you would find out that it is a man-centered religion. Every one of these religions that I have talked to you about do not believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They all believe that you have to do something to be able to inherit eternal life. And again, what a false hope that is. Because if I have to compare myself and what I have done for God to you or you vice versa to me, what hope do you have of eternal life, Sam? I mean, how do I know when I've done enough good? How do you know if you've done enough good? Not enough lashings. You know, there's actually a group in the Philippines today, and every year at Easter, they actually not just what the, the term is flagellate themselves. I don't know if anybody here has seen that, but they actually flagellate themselves, and they actually, there are several men who are willing to be nailed to a cross on Easter to be able to represent, and they think that it is doing penance in order to be able to obtain merit with God. Those people believe that it is gaining them a better standing with God. You know what they're doing? They're demeaning the cross. They're saying the cross was not enough. The work that Jesus Christ did was not finished. 
But yet he said, Christ himself said, it is finished, tetelestai. It's in the aorist tense, and it means it is a once-for-all-time completed action, never to be done again. Now, for example, to give you a difference in the verbs and the tenses here, if I were to say, I ate lunch today, that is not in the aorist tense. I'm not going to be able to live the rest of my life on the sustenance that I gained by eating banana pudding after dinner this morning or after lunch. That is not an aorist tense. An aorist tense is something that we use, the term is used, or the, the, this particular tense is used to define a particular action, a very specific action, and it is never, you cannot do it again. So, for example, we would use, in a normal circumstance, you might be able to use this with marriage. You get married once and for all. This is the term when we talk about till death us do part. This is where this comes from. So we get married one time. It should be once for all until we die. Well, beyond this, there's an eternal aspect. You see, because if one of us passes away between my wife and I and, and then the remaining spouse chooses to remarry, does that become an heiress tense verb anymore? No, because if one of us get remarried, then we are actually breaking the eternal or the, this, this is no longer a temporal thing with me and my wife. If I pass away, she chooses to remarry, then it's not once and for all completed, never to be done again. This is what Christ did. You see, because ours is limited by time and space, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ was done, and it was done not 2,000 years ago on Calvary. It was actually done and established and set in place in eternity past before the world was ever even created, Ephesians chapter 1. So this gives you just a rough idea of these four main religions. These are the main religions that are found. We could have gone through... Buddhism, Hinduism, those actually cover a lot. They all have the same series of do, 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 don't, 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 and hopefully you might be able to achieve some kind of nirvana or have some kind of hope of an afterlife. With the exception, of course, of Hinduism. That's one of the weirdest religions to think that you can be reincarnated, and as long as you're good enough, one day you might end up as a cow and end up as a somebody's hamburger. I don't know that there's any hope in that. Number two, what is the second answer? Exegetical. exegetical. Now there are, this, this would be a great place for a whiteboard. And exegesis and eisegesis are the two ways that we approach scripture. Exegesis means a, an exposition or an explanation of a text based on a careful objective analysis. The word literally means to lead out of. So, for example, when we're going verse by verse and we're breaking down the passage like we did in Philemon, that's exegesis. E-X-E-G-I-S-I-S. -E -I -I exegesis. The other option is eisegesis. And if you want a classic example of eisegesis, turn on the TV and watch Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen knows nothing about exegesis. Eisegesis is to lead into. In other words, I open up the scripture. I already come to the scripture with a predetermined thought. In other words, like health, wealth, and prosperity. So I believe that God wants me to have great success. He wants me to be wealthy. He wants me to have all this nice stuff. And as long as I just name it and claim it, well, the problem is somebody's going to eventually ask, well, where do you find that in scripture? 
So I go to scripture and I flip through it or I use the lucky dip method and I find a verse that has something kind of sort of not really to do with, like for example, Joshua 1.8, and then thou shalt have good success, which has nothing to do with us. Ah, God must want me to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And you see what the problem is? Again, we have used a man-centered perspective to be able to try to understand theology. You see, because when you look at the Old Testament, here's another one. What about health? Is our healing covered in the atonement as far as earthly healing? Isaiah chapter 53, by his stripes we are healed. That's the classic, that is the number one verse found in Pentecostal and charismatic movements. Does that apply to healing to us today? No, because you can look in the mirror and see yourself getting older every day. And eventually, you and I are going to die, and it is a result of the fall. And the problem is that when we look at Scripture, when it comes to the doctrine of health, as it applies to how God came down, eventually there will be, in eternity, there will be a full healing, because our bodies then will be glorified. And then we will be healed, and there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more tears. But that's not going to come in this life. To lead into. This simply means that the interpreter injects his own ideas into the text, making it mean whatever he wants. My dad's given this example in the past, and I've remembered it down through the years. The guy who uses the lucky dip method, and he opens up the Bible at random, and he puts his finger down, and it says, And Judas went and hung himself. Well, he can't figure out what in the world or how that might apply to him, so he closes his Bible, lets it fall open, and he puts it down again, and he looks and it says, go and do thou likewise. <laughs> no, 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 no. So he closes his Bible, opens it up one more time, and puts his finger down, and it says, and what thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> that is eisegesis. That is reading into the Scripture what we want it to say. Thirdly, Systematic. This is simply the orderly blend of all scripture as it is taught in pertaining to doctrine. This means we can't cherry pick the parts we like and get rid of the rest. I know. Just threw a wrench right in your plans, didn't it, Mike? All scripture comes together in a beautiful tapestry that starts and ends with God. And the only way that the church truly submits to the Bible's doctrinal and moral teaching is by submitting to the full scope of the Bible's doctrinal and moral teaching. Do you know that the majority of the denominations that we have in America in particular today actually started after 1830? Do you know what they came from? Ignorance of the scriptures. People took the parts that they liked, ditched the rest of it, the parts that they didn't understand, they didn't bother to ask anybody because they wanted to be right. So you've got all kinds of offshoot. I remember reading about one missionary, I think he was in Zimbabwe, and one man actually fell down into a well, of course a very illiterate people, fell down into a well head first, and so he prayed until somebody came and got him out. And so his 
thought and his teaching, he started a new work because God had saved him out of that well. And so everybody in that church decided that they had to stand on their head in order to be able to pray. You know, we've done, again, we are demeaning scripture because we want it to mean what we think it should mean instead of what does God already say that it means. Number four. Comprehensive. This simply means evenly covering major elements of systematic theology. Too many people want to focus on one aspect of theology to the exclusion of other major doctrines. Sometimes the focus is on minor or smaller doctrines that have no salvific bearing or dealing with salvation. For example, I love theology. Some of you who are older will recognize this author, Hal Lindsey. Anybody here heard of Hal Lindsey? Okay, a couple of you have. Uh, how, about, uh, how about Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye? How about Left Behind series? Yeah, there we go. Okay, now we're starting to get on the same page. Horrible theology. Now, there's aspects of it that are true. The problem is that these individuals have focused, they have pinpointed, laser-targeted one particular aspect of theology and everything in their books is built around one single solitary microsecond event called the rapture. And the whole purpose of the book is those who avoided it or those who got caught up in it instead of focusing on the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return just like he said he's going to return. Now look at The Chosen. Anybody here ever seen The Chosen episode? Okay. Hopefully I'm not going to step on too many toes here. The Chosen is horrible theology. The Chosen is actually owned by the Mormon church. Dallas Jenkins has crawled in bed with the Mormons in order to be able to gain funding for that show. In the current season, he has Jesus quoting passages directly out of the Book of Mormon to be able to substantiate what he is doing in Israel. That is heresy. But it looks good. It films good. People have fallen in love with the characters. But they are characters that do not represent the true Jesus of the Bible. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, let me tell you who the Jesus of the Mormon Bible is. The Jesus of the Mormon Bible started out in eternity past by being one of many spirit babies that was born to to God the Father or Father God and one of his many wives. At some point in history, God, Father God, comes down in the dead of night and has relationships, intimacy with one of his own spirit daughters, Mary, That's called incestuous relationship in order for Jesus to be able to have a human mother. And in the meantime, in heaven, Jesus and Lucifer get into a battle to decide who is going to be the bearer of salvation. And Father God just happens to decide that Jesus' offer of salvation was better than Lucifer's. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. And their brothers. And their brothers. It is like sci-fi to go along with the holy underwear. Here's the, here's the thing I want, you to, I want you to understand about this. Two things. Number one, 
we are called to love even our enemies as we considered this morning. But being loving does not mean that you don't tell people the truth. If you can't tell people the truth, you're not being loving. Which is why I can tell somebody, I can talk with somebody who is a Roman Catholic background or somebody who is LDS, and I can tell them the truth and say, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't line up with Scripture. I'm not trying to make you a Baptist. I'm not trying to make you a anything like they're trying to do with me. Do you know that you can be born, if you're born into the Mormon church, you're considered a Mormon from birth? Do you know if you're born into a Catholic family, you're a Catholic from birth? To be a member of a Baptist church, you have to be saved first of all and then scripturally baptized in order to be a part of a Baptist or a Baptistic church. There's a huge difference. Secondly, I think it's important that we understand this. I use the term minor and I use it, I try to use it sparingly because all doctrine in scripture is major, if you will. But within the confines of systematic theology, there are ten main points. Within those points of theology, like eschatology, for example, we can agree to disagree on various aspects. For example, we can disagree about the timing of the rapture. We can disagree about what happens in Revelation here or what references Daniel chapter 9 or chapter 10 references there. Those are points that have nothing to do with our salvation. If somebody holds to an amillennial or a postmillennial or a premillennial or a panmillennial perspective, those do not change your salvation. That's why it's important that we focus on the doctrines that are actually going to change us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we can argue, and there are plenty of people. Uh, any of you know the Baptist theologian R.C. Sproul? You've heard of him? Okay. I'm sorry? Yeah. So while he was here on earth, he was Presbyterian. He's Baptist now. <laughs> Seriously, he passed away not too many years ago. But here, here's, the, here's the point. All doctrine is profitable for learning. But let's not get caught up in the minutiae, in arguing about the endless genealogy parts of Scripture that are really not going to do anything to change your life and mine. In other words, we can argue over numerology or eschatology or aspects of ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. We can argue about those. We can debate whether it should be elder-led or congregation-led or Presbyterian-led. And, and there are men who are greater theologians than, than probably any one of us, including me, will ever be in our life. And they agree to disagree. George Whitfield, for example, John and Charles Wesley, they were, they were best buds. I mean, they were, if, they were to been, if golf would have been invented, they would have been golfing buddies. And yet they were on two different aspects when it came to their theology. One of them was highly Arminian. The other one was highly Calvinistic. Number five. Pastoral. Second Peter 1.3. The scripture, all scripture is good for everything that pertains to life and godliness. That is a great comfort to me. 
on I'm having a bad day, a bad week, bad month, bad year, bad whatever it may be. May, I may even feel like my entire life is in tatters. I can know that I can go to the scriptures and I can find God's answers for my life and for yours. This is why people have asked me, well, who do you recommend? And there are several times I've even offered this online to people who just seem like they are just in dire straits and they need a counselor. I've extended my services as a pastor to be able to reach out to them, but I tell them all the same thing. We begin and end at the Bible, not at the DSM-5. That's the psychology Bible. That's the Bible that says we're going to begin looking at your mind and trying to figure out whose fault it is. Is it your parents' fault? Is it culture's fault? Is it society's fault? Is it whose fault is it? The Bible says the reason that you're in the mess that you're in is because of your sin nature. And we have to deal with the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue is all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Out of the mouth the heart speaks. Whatever is in your Heart is eventually going to come out through your mouth. This is application with expository preaching and holy living. Now, I believe there's different types of preaching. You can have theolo- or you can have theological themes. You can look at, for example, Dad is, has done uh, the disciples, for example, or take just one passage, which is Psalm 23, and look at different aspects of that. And I believe that there is a place and a time for each one of those But I believe that we cannot avoid preaching through the scriptures verse by verse by verse. Number six, practical. Now this one was a little bit interesting because I don't find anything about that thousand book page that's actually totable. In other words, that is a very heavy book to be able to carry around. It's not something that, I mean, you could put it on your head and do squats. You know, that might help gain a little bit of strength in your shoulders and in your neck. But he says that the tome is affordable option for most believers. For example, does anybody have any idea what it costs to go to seminary per class, per hour? Any guesses? It's about... $450 to $500 per hour. That's about the best that you can do right now. So if this is a nine-hour class, either Bible college or in seminary, somebody get your calculator out real quick and figure out how much it would cost to go to class to get this same material. Say $500 times three credit hours. $1,500. for just one class. Let's see, wait a minute. $450. Or 500 times 3 is 1,500 times 9. Yeah, yeah, that I'm I'm trying to, my head is going round and round. So say $500 per credit hour times 9 is $4,500. But you can buy this book for about 30 bucks. It's a lot of material that is in there. Oh, yeah. And, and, and here's the thing. This, this book, this book will help you and it will change your life. I, I, I have no problems with people wanting to go off to Bible college or seminary, but I think that too often the church has failed in its responsibility and pastors have failed in their responsibility to actually train men and women for ministry, to train them for life. 
so it's practical. You can take the Bible with you no matter where you go, even including in your memory. Now some of you may have an answer, so I want to ask you for some input here. Question number two, why are each of these important to our study? Does anybody have an answer they would like to share? Trenton, he's been waiting for this for days. <laughs> One point. So for biblical thought, this ensures that the doctrine is grounded in the progression of scriptural revelation, emphasizing the importance of scripture or the foundation of all teaching. It aligns with 2 Timothy 3.16, which states that all scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching. Okay. Anybody else? Oh, all that in that little space? <laughs> no, no, no. He's got extra pages. No. <laughs> I like two extra pages. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, I didn't write an answer, but just thinking about it, um, as you break every, you know, every uh, bit of it down, um, I think it, you know, um, I guess it would correct uh, your line of the correct theology um, in, in order to, um, I guess, uh, be in the right instead of getting, uh, you know, Straight. I, I don't know. I'm not making too much sense. Kind no, of no, no, no. That's you're right. The more you understand, I guess, the, the better off you are in a theological approach. Yeah. Like I stated last week, uh, twenty fully twenty five percent every year consistently of those who go from an evangelical or Baptist church every year to the cults come out of Baptist evangelical right, churches. Right. I think that's where I was getting. Yeah. Uh, as you broke it down. As you understand it more, mm-hmm. you're going to be on the correct path of the right theology. Yeah. Gabe? Each of the six um, areas has its own quality of how to learn to uh, study the Bible. Yeah. You can, and this is one of the things that I alluded to last week when I said that sometimes doctrine can be boring. And it's boring, number one, if you don't have somebody that loves theology to be able to teach it firstly but secondly if you don't love theology and realize recognize the importance of what that theology does in your life and mine you're going to struggle to go through this book just just one as just one example okay yes it sure can yeah it can strive to make you like Christ um, it, it gives us a clear view of what the Bible says and how we should live our lives. Yep. How do we live our lives? We live our lives according to the Word of God. Uh, a, a lot of times when, you know, it, my dad and I were talking about this fairly recently. Uh, I am amazed at the organizations and the clubs and the this and the that that everybody is willing to join in their life. You can join the health club, you can join the YMCA, you can join the mooses and the gooses and the geese and the ganders and whatever it is you want to join. And every one of them have rules. But don't tell me how to live my life when it comes to church. Sad, isn't it? But every organization has rules, and the rules are there for a reason. It's to be able to make sure, just like when you go into the military. If you were in the military and you served, there are certain things that you do and that you don't do. You learn how to become a good soldier. 
you learn how to become a good airman. If you go and you're working in electricity, as Brother Ryan does, he has to learn, maybe sometimes the hard way, that there are certain things that you do and you don't do. You don't stand in a puddle and stick your finger in a live socket to test to see whether it's actually turned on or not. That's a rule. It may not be written anywhere, but it is a rule. Um, referencing what you, the question you asked, putting all these six together, you kind of gave the answer in the beginning when you talked about God, the depravity of man. This pretty much, if you understand this and learn this, you're able to bridge that gap and be useful to God and sharing to others. We're, we're not going to get much further in the class this evening, but, but if you're going to write anything else down, I would write this down. It is only through biblical doctrine that you will know true spiritual freedom. It is only through biblical doctrine that you will know true spiritual freedom. I made a reference to it this morning. Passage in 1 John says, The commandments of God are not grievous. If we come and we want to complain and gripe because, oh man, there's an awful lot of rules. There's 613 rules in the Old Testament. There's this in the New Testament. And nobody can actually possibly do all of those things. The reason why we can't do those things is because of the separation that we have from God. The, the problem that we've got within our lives is too often we think that God owes us something. He owes in our life or he owes in this or whatever. Instead of simply reading and understanding that God tells us in the book of Numbers, Be ye holy for I am holy. It's not our requirement. It's not the church's requirement. You say, well, I've been in a lot of churches and a lot of churches don't require that. That's because they're not biblical. I mean, that's, that's really the long and short of it. Because the more you spend time with God and the more you understand who He is, who He is, the more you're going to love Him. The more you're going to want to desire to be like Him. I shared this with somebody last week. When I was growing up, I didn't obey my dad or I did obey my dad at times, whichever one it was. And the reason that I did was because I was afraid of the pow-pow. So if I did, I, if I if I obeyed, it wasn't because I had a heart that wanted to please my dad or my mom. It was because I wanted my own way. With the Lord, it's not any different. Because the more we know His Word, the more we're going to want to be able to say, "Lord, I'm not afraid of the punishment because the punishment was taken by Your Son Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. It has been atoned for." God didn't save you just for the purpose of taking you to heaven. God saved you to be able to escape the wrath of God. And when we understand what we have escaped from, it's going to change our response to Him and to His commands. And instead of being concerned about, oh man, that's an awful lot of rules, we're going to be able to say, oh Lord, I am thankful for the privilege that you have called me to be one of your children. It's like driving. You know, there's not a lot of rules when you're sitting in the back seat. 
But when you're actually sitting in the driver's seat and you're driving down the road and you're learning how to drive, you realize how many rules there actually are. And they're there and we have the privilege of being able to drive on the roads, to be able to drive a car, ride a bike, ride a motorcycle, whatever it is that we want to drive or ride down the road. But to be able to do that, we have to follow the rules. And when we follow the rules and we follow God in whatever direction it is that he wants for us to live our lives, and it really is this simple. You want to know God's will for your life? God's will is that you be holy. You say, well, how do I know whether I'm supposed to be a missionary or I'm supposed to go to Bolivia or I'm supposed to go to England or I'm supposed to go to Argentina or Liberia? Are you striving to do that here? Are you striving to tell others? You are? Great. Have you been taught enough theology that you know how to be able to handle the people and the culture and the society that you're going to? Yes. Has God given you the means to be able to do it? Yes. Then go. That was hard. How about going to Bible college? Uh, do I want to go to Bible college? Well, are you paying attention in church? Are you seeking to learn everything you can from your pastor and for the elders and, and the Sunday school class and all of the classes that are available to you and making yourself avail or availing yourself of the library that the church has? A great number of books. There are thousands of dollars worth of books that are sitting on the shelves in these two offices. Are you doing that? Well, well no, but it'll be different in college. No, it won't. Won't be any different. If you learn to be to, to for for God to apply your life in every aspect of your life, right where you're at, then you can look at service in other places or doing other things. Too often, though, we think that God will call us to do something that we've never done and we've had no desire to do. God doesn't operate that way. But if we're striving to be holy, I, I, I've told I've told plenty of people down through the years. Well, who am I supposed to marry? Number one, a believer, somebody who has the same desire as you do. And if that's where you're at, and that's where she's at, marry her, and raise a family for the glory of God. What car should I drive? Are you being a good steward? Can you afford the payment? Do you have cash if you want to do it that way to be able to pay for the car? Yep. Then go buy whatever you want. Buy a house, same thing. Buy groceries, same thing. We, we make it so difficult. And God simply says, be holy. Because I am holy. And when that is our driving force, that we are striving to be holy, we'll make all kinds of right decisions. And we'll find when we get to the end of the road, that God was the one that was guiding us because the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way. Amen. Any questions? Oh, it is only through biblical doctrine that we will experience true um, spiritual freedom. Yes. Really important question, but I'm just curious. You mentioned 1830 is when a lot of these things happened. What happened in that time period that changed things? American illiteracy. It happened at that point? Mm -hmm. Yep. What, what Between 1830 and 1850, roughly, you, you had a situation where, and, and the question was, what happened around 1830 that generated a lot of the denominations in America? 
you you had people who were not trained either by pastors or seminaries or Bible colleges, um, and this was actually coming out of the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening from the late 1700s. And you get into the early 1800s, you got a a excuse me a breakdown of uh, 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 churches. Basically, you have about a generation, generation and a half. Since this revival has taken place, the preaching of guys like George Whitfield, excuse me, etc. And instead of continuing to study the scriptures, they became like Ephesus. They lost their first love. And so instead of continuing to encourage and beginning to train, you would have people who had no training whatsoever. Some of them who could barely read the Bible standing up on a Sunday thinking that they were now supposed to be a pastor. And so instead of people calling them to account for what they were actually saying and saying, wait a minute, this doesn't line up with scripture. You ended up having another denomination form because, well, we don't like those guys over there. And unfortunately, that's what drove it. And then later on, you have, of course, and there's nothing new under the sun, but, but, but it seems like every generation or every other generation, you fight things like inerrancy of scripture the infallibility of scripture the sufficiency of scripture which is one of the things we're fighting now is the are the scriptures really sufficient for all that pertains to life and godliness well if you don't believe that you're going to have a real hard time but you're not going to have any you're not going to have any difficulty whatsoever accepting what the world throws at you unfortunately and then of course in the late 1800s you began to have german german uh, seminaries that were beginning to spew out all of this liberal stuff. And then you had a guy by the name of Charles Darwin. We'll look at this, Lord willing, on the 29th. A guy by the name of Charles Darwin who wrote Evolution, and he brought this into the churches. This guy was actually an ordained Methodist minister. And what ended up happening? Instead of going back to the Word and saying, well, wait a minute, the Bible says, in the beginning, God. They designed something called theistic evolution. Well... We'll just take a lot of science and a little bit of God and we'll marry them together. And it began the great downfall within evangelical churches. Because pastors were not prepared to be able to say the word of God is sufficient even when it comes to creation. We're going to question everything God does. It's, it's the oldest question in the book. Did God really say that? Yep, he sure did. He sure did. Yep. Anybody else? For the gate. Um, are you done with this one packet? No, no, no. Or, or are we going to go over it? Over no, we're going to continue with this until we're finished with this packet. Okay. okay. Yeah, no, because there, there, I know there are other questions that some of you have. Yeah. But don't worry, the good news is there's only 1,025 pages and we covered half a page tonight. <laughs> Sam? Yeah, you do. So speaking of like not going to seminary and things like that, yeah, not being classically trained in languages, you know, if you're not a linguist in a sense, do we have any right of um, trying to unblur the lines between eisegesis and exegesis through the languages and the usages of words, specifically comparing the old to the new? Yes. Great, great question. So do, if we're not classically or seminary trained, do we have the right, just to rephrase the question, do we have the right to be able to try to break down the differences between exegesis and eisegesis? Using the language. Using the language. Yeah, the word specifically used maybe in the Old Testament and 
right? And the so the simple answer, yes, we do. Because we are called to rightly divide the word of truth. If you look in the New Testament, for example, the Berean Christians, the Berean Christians were more faithful than those of Thessalonica because they studied the word daily to see whether those things that were being taught to them were true or not. And that is, again, there's, there, there's, there's two faults within the churches today. Number one, pastors that no longer preach the truth because they don't care about the truth or they don't know the truth. And secondly, people who are in the pew who are not holding the pastors accountable for what they're teaching. That's the reason why churches go off the rails. So yes, we do have a responsibility. And there are so many tools. You can't reinvent the wheel anymore. You're not going to be able to go to a Bible college or to seminary and spend tens of thousands of dollars and get into debt and try to take some little church somewhere and become a pastor there one day if you're not making yourself, of, if you're not availing yourself of everything that's available. We're going to, in the next lesson, we're going to, Lord willing, we're going to give you all kinds of tools that you would be able to use. And, and again, you know this book, by the time you know this book or go through this book, you're going to know an awful lot of scripture. And you're going to know how to be able to apply that scripture. And I would dare say that you're probably going to know a great deal more than most pastors in America today by the time we're done. And I'm not boasting because I'm the one teaching it. It's because I know what that word does. I know what doctrine does. And again, that's the reason why we're in such a mess that we are today is because of bad doctrine. Anybody else? Well, thank you for coming. And uh, do you have a question? I didn't get the end of that quote again. Oh, uh, so true spiritual freedom. Did you get that part? True yeah. spiritual freedom. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for our time tonight. I pray that everything that we have said, that it brings honor and glory to you. For me, I love doctrine. Studying and understanding doctrine has changed the way I see you and the way I see myself, the way I see your word, the way I see life. But we don't always do it perfectly. So help us as we take, go through each lesson, every couple of weeks going through a new section. Help us to be able to apply what we learn. You'd be able to share it with others as we have the opportunity. And may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.